All right, hey, good evening, Summit Church. It is good to see you tonight. My name is Andy, I'm one of the pastors here. And yeah, we just want to welcome you. We're really glad that you could join us tonight. Just like Justin said, we are in the book of Exodus. And we're about four weeks into this series now. And I'll just tell you, man, this has been like a really, really exciting series. I've really loved going through this with all of you uh, as a church family together. And I hope, uh, hope you've enjoyed it as well. I know that we've received a lot of really, really positive feedback uh, about the book of Exodus so far, which is encouraging. It just reminds us uh, like how good and how enjoyable it is just to simply walk through books of the Bible. Just again, like Justin shared, that uh, we at the summit, if this is your first time, we just love to take certain books of the Bible and start at the beginning and go all the way through the end, however long that takes us. And that's what we're doing right now with Exodus. And it's been a great journey uh, for us so far. Now, as we jump in this t- today, uh, man, I was thinking about a conversation that I had actually with my wife this past week, Angela, and uh, she had just taken one of those personality tests. And, uh, and so we were like sitting down and talking about the results of her personality test and you know, going over all those little uh, letters. I think she is an INJT, if that's correct. I think that's what she is. Uh, we were talking about that. We were talking about her results. We were talking about what surprised her, what uh, she found interesting. And in doing that, uh, she actually made an observation that I felt like was not only really, really insightful, but I also felt like it was quite relevant to even what we're talking about tonight in the book of Exodus. Because she said, after looking at her results, one of the things that she's really Realized, or maybe just even observed is the fact that the older we get, maybe we can say uh, we tend to assume that the older we go, we get in life, we tend to assume that we'll only grow in confidence. And, and we tend to think like the older we get, the more confident we are in almost all areas of life. You know, you kind of think like in middle school or maybe high school, those years are typically years where you lack a lot of confidence. But then, you know, as the older you get, you just kind of grow up. And, and the, the older you are, the more you get of confidence. Uh, that's what we tend to assume. But the reality is you look at almost any like social study that's been done, it's actually not true. It's actually almost the opposite. For most people, generally, the older they get, they tend actually to grow less confident in life. They usually go through all kinds of different seasons of life that, uh, that challenge their confidence levels. And uh, I thought that was really interesting as we were just thinking about it. And there's probably a lot of different reasons why. I mean, for, for one thing, uh, typically the older you get, the, uh, the different types of rejection that you face later in life tend to hurt a little bit more. You know, uh, you know whether it's just something like job interviews interviews gone bad or housing offers that fall through or relationships that, that, that end. You know, there's something different uh, about a relationship ending and, and maybe in college or in your 20s or 30s compared to a relationship ending like in seventh grade, right? You know, like when she dumps you in seventh grade, it's a little bit different than when she dumps you in college, you know? And, and, and we recognize, man, like, and that only affects you in such great ways as you go forward uh, and the way that you have confidence about stepping into other relationships. You know, all different tar- parts of our lives are like that. Uh, really, ultimately, there's just even an awareness. The older you get, you begin to discover uh, really how little control you have over your life, particularly the areas of life that matter the most to you. And because of that, I mean, it's just easy to not have a tremendous amount of confidence uh, about your life. In fact, uh, a lot of you can probably resonate with that. I know I have conversations with people all the time that when they're just being honest, you know, they thinking about their lives and they're thinking the reality that, you know, if they're just being honest, they don't go through life, they don't walk through life 
with this extraordinary amount of confidence that everything's going to be okay and everything's going to work out well in the end and everything's going to happen just the way that they planned it. And that could be because maybe certain expectations that we have on our lives, either expectations that we've placed on our lives ourselves, you know, expectations for certain jobs and careers or, or you know, just expectations for relationships, maybe just even expectations that other people have placed on us. You know, expectations like our parents have placed, we're hoping, we're just wondering, am I going to live up to those? Am I going to have the type of job that my parents are going to be proud of? Am I going to have the type of relationships that my friends will admire? Will I have the type of lifestyle that will be, that will be good and healthy? You know, all of those things, you know, really, I think a lot of us can probably resonate to some degree here this evening that, uh, you know, there's, there's times in our life where we kind of lack the confidence to believe that our lives are going to turn out the way that we hope. Now, if you do resonate with that in any degree, this is actually a really good Sunday for you to be here. Because tonight, what's happening is that we're actually at a turning point in the book of Exodus. This is one of the first major pivots in the plot of Exodus. And for the very first time here in this book, we're going to see something that we haven't seen at all whatsoever at all up until this point in the book of Exodus. We're going to see God speak. We're going to see God speak, and not only does he speak, but he's going to reveal something about himself. He's going to reveal something about his character, and he's going to even actually reveal something about his plans for us, his people, and in doing so, man, I think this is, I think as we look at Exodus 3 tonight, I hope that we see this as uh, an incredibly gracious move by God, particularly for those of us who lack confidence. In fact, I'll even go as far to say, if you're the type of person that might say, not only do I tend to struggle to confidently believe God is who he, he says he is, but I, I, maybe even the type of person who's like, I'm not even sure I know what I believe about God. And I'm not even entirely sure I believe God exists. I think if Moses, the man who wrote this book, was here tonight, I think Moses would likely say, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly what that's like. And in many ways, I wrote this chapter just for you. So tonight, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Exodus 3, and, uh, and in that, we're going to look and we're going to see the way our God comes near to us and, and how that is really encouraging and good news for all of us this evening. So we have a lot of ground to cover. This chapter is super long, and there's so much helpful stuff in here, and I'm just going to jump in at the very beginning at verse 1, and we're going to try to go all the way through it. Uh, so track with me here, starting in verse 1. Uh, here's what it says. If you have your Bible out, look uh, at that with me. It says in verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. All right, we're going to stop right there. Now, if you've been along uh, this journey with us going through the book of Exodus, if you've been here for the last few weeks, uh, you should probably see that this is intentionally ironic. All right, it's supposed to be. Remember where Moses came from. Adopted into Pharaoh's family, raised in the royal house, educated, trained. He was growing in influence, but what happened? At the age of 40, when he saw his people, the Israelites, being oppressed, what did he do? He stepped in, and one day in a fit of rage, he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and he took action. He ended up actually killing that Egyptian. We saw this last week. What did he have to do? He had to flee for his life to the desert, and now we get to this point of the story. Exodus 3, this is 40 years later, 40 years removed. What has become of Moses, the man who is practically a prince in Egypt? He's gone from rags to riches and then back again. And now he is a shepherd in a foreign land, just barely getting by. 
I mean, his job alone as a shepherd, this is, this is reflecting the way Moses has sunk to the lowest of lows. He's 80 years old now. He's lost everything And from the looks of it, he has come to his end. As one commentator put it, uh, Moses is a failed, forgotten old man eking out a living in a forgotten part of the world. And that's his situation. And what happens? It's a normal day. He's tending the sheep. Look again in verse one. It says, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Later, we'll know that this is Mount Sinai. Verse two, and then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Basically, I see that bush burning. I'm going to look at that bush burning. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. All right, now let's stop right there. I love this scene. It's a pretty famous scene. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you may have even heard about Moses and the burning bush. And uh, you know, it, it's a great picture of what's happening here. But as I was even just thinking about this scene, uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite traditions uh, to do throughout, uh, throughout winter here in Denver. Uh, and that is to have a fire in our fireplace at home. Now, it doesn't really work when it's 70 something degrees, uh, which has been like, I feel like all winter here. But on the, uh, on the nights when it does get really, really cold and the temperatures drop. Uh, this is something my family loves to do. And we make it a whole family affair. I mean, the kids get involved with it. I make them go like, all right, you guys go downstairs. You got to pick up the firewood and bring it up and get the newspaper and start rolling it into the balls. That's going to serve as our kindling. I mean, my kids, especially the two older ones, they're four years old and two years old. They get so excited about this. I mean, they are ecstatic. They're like literally, they're like jumping off the couches. We're going to have a fire tonight. And they're like bouncing around. They're so, so excited about this. And, uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're going crazy until what? Until I light the match. Because when I light the match, at that moment, they just stop. They freeze. They're entranced. And they watch because they know as soon as I take that match and I flick it into the fireplace, I know, boom, that's going to go from just a little tiny spark to this roaring fire. And it's incredible to watch them do this. I mean, you literally, you can see this happen. And the funny thing about this is that, um, you know, my kids, I never really had to do a whole lot of training with them about being cautious or careful around the fire. I I mean, obviously I told them, like, don't touch the fire. That's hot. We don't do that. You know, but it's like, as a parent, there are like a million things you tell your kids not to do, and they like listened to almost none of them. But like this is one of those things from the youngest of ages, two years old, three, four years old. I mean, they like would always listen. There was a healthy fear there from the very beginning, and you could tell. I mean, you could see it happen. You could watch it. They'd be so excited. They're bouncing off the walls, and then a moment later, as soon as the, the fire's roaring, they stop. And then they're laying on the ground, their head on a pillow, gazing into the flames at least for like a minute or two. And then they're like a two-year-old and a four-year-old again, and they're going crazy. Um, that's, that's typically how it goes. But you know, it struck me this week when we had that fire going uh, just a few nights ago. We did a fire, and it was great. I, you know, I was preparing this sermon. I'd been studying Exodus 3. And you know, we all know, isn't it interesting that uh, it's just kind of this human behavior, uh, the unique, unique way that we all just tend to find fire simultaneously inviting and terrifying. Isn't that interesting? As humans, we, we tend to simultaneously find fire inviting and terrifying. And if that's the case, then it shouldn't surprise us that when God finally breaks into the story of Exodus, he does so in a flame. 
right? I mean, God has been in the background. We've been watching God sovereignly move all of these pieces and divinely orchestrate all these events, but it's all been in the background. Every part of it, a transcendent God working behind the scenes. Moses didn't know. Pharaoh didn't know. The people of Israel didn't know. But it's in this moment, Exodus 3, the God who is both inviting and terrifying comes near. He makes himself known. He speaks from the fire. I think the question, I think, I just have to naturally ask in this case is why? Why is this the way that God reveals himself? Why so dramatic? Well, one reason, actually most commentators would assume when looking at this passage, that up until this point, Moses probably believed in God, but he had never actually encountered God. Here's what I want you to see tonight. This is, this is so important. The God of the Bible is a God who's not someone we should just mentally believe in in this, in this vague, abstract way. Some of you tend to think about God in that way. No, he is a God that we should encounter, a God that we personally interact with. Now think about it. I mean, fire, I mean, you guys know how this works. Uh, a fire awakens your senses, almost all of them. You go to the mountains, you go camping, you have this, this campfire And what do you see? I mean, you see its brightness. You feel its heat. You hear its roar. You smell its smoke. Even often days later, you still smell like a campfire, right? I mean, you don't believe in fire. You experience fire. And up until now, Moses probably believed in God. But according to most commentators here, this is essentially Moses' conversion. This is where he went from head knowledge to heart knowledge. This is where he went from a mental belief into a life-changing encounter. And life change, even today, even today, life change is still the way that we're able to see and others are able to see even in you that you have made the jump, that you have gone from mental belief to actual life-changing relationship with God himself. Man, that is what we're after here. And that's exactly why we exist here at the Summit Church. This isn't merely some kind of academic pursuit. We're not just trying to mentally believe the right things only, as much as that matters. I mean, it matters so, so, so much that we believe rightly. We put a ton of energy and time into that, but only so much as it leads us to experiencing God himself. I mean, that's what we're after. We don't want you just to have this, I don't know, like this weird American intellectual affirmation that there's this higher being that doesn't really have a tremendous bearing on your life. I mean, that kind of, if that's kind of your posture towards God, I mean, that's the very thing that Jesus would warn about later. Like, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Man, God doesn't just want our mental affirmation alone. He wants our hearts. He wants our lives to be wrapped up in knowing and experiencing and enjoying him personally. Man, that's why Gosh, if you're, if you're a normal part of the Summit Church and, and you come here regularly, you, you see us and you hear us every week just trying to show you why knowing God leads to experiencing God. Knowing God leads always to experiencing God and why that's really such good news for us. I mean, that's why even when we talk about things like marriage, for example, for those of you who are married, uh, when we talk about marriage, we're not just telling you like, man, here's three easy steps to having a healthier or happier marriage. No, like we talk about what does it look like to experience the very person of God within your marriage, to experience God's grace and God's forgiveness with your husband, with your spouse, to experience God himself together. 
Man, that's why even when we talk about things like your job, and if you have a job that you don't, don't absolutely adore, I mean, that's why we don't just tell you like, well, hey, here's how you can suck it up and get over it. No, like we tell you like, man, like, what does it look like? We ask the question, what does it even look like for us to think about God's power and his presence at work in you while you are working amongst people that are really difficult to be around? And that's why we talk about experiencing God's kindness in your friendships, experiencing God's goodness within a community of people who love you, experiencing his gentleness as he calls you to trust in him. All of these things, like a fire, like the mountains, like love itself, it's not meant to just be believed in, it's meant to be experienced. It's one of the most unique, one of the most beautiful parts of the Christian faith. Because of Jesus Christ dying in our place for the forgiveness of our sins, we can be saved into a relationship with God. I mean, you can experience God. Isn't that incredible? You can personally experience God. Have you done that? Have you ever made the decision to trust Jesus with that? I mean, do you know what it's like to experience God? Have you made the jump from head knowledge to heart knowledge? It's the most important question that you could ever ask in your life and answer. And man, that's our desire for every single one of you here, even tonight, to not just believe, but to experience, to encounter a living God. And friends, that's exactly what we see God showing us here in Exodus 3. This transcendent God comes down and he comes near and he comes close because he wants a relationship with you. That is good news for us. That's the first thing we even see here this evening is that God comes near. Now, secondly, not only does God come near, but we're also going to see this evening that God addresses our inadequacies. God addresses our inadequacies. Now, look back at verse 6 with me. If you have your Bible open, look back at verse 6. This is God speaking to Moses, and look what he says, verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses, what did he do? He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. And like what we're seeing here, this is intended to be one of the most moving scenes emotionally. If you could just even imagine, I mean, just imagine that, that you're wondering where God is. He seems so silent. It feels like he's forgotten. Some of you don't even need to imagine that. You've either lived that at some point in your life or you were living that right now. And suddenly God breaks into the story. He comes down and he comes near and he speaks to Moses and he says, I've seen, I've heard. I, I mean, just look, verse seven, this is such a beautiful verse. If you have your Bible, you should just even underline those words. I've seen, I've heard, I know, and I've come to deliver, verse eight. I'm going to do something about it. Can you imagine if you heard those words personally, directly from the mouth of God? Even tonight, I have seen your afflictions. I have heard your cries. I know your suffering. This is meant just to be a picture, an extraordinary picture of the compassionate God we worship. And he tells Moses, this is great, verse 10, come, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh. 
that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, but I will be with you. And you see what's happening here? God says, Moses, I'm sending you to bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses responds, what? Like, are you kidding me? Like, who am I to go do something like that? Now, do you remember what the commentator said earlier? Moses is a failed, forgotten old man eking out a living in a forgotten part of the world. Even Moses believed that about himself. Who am I to do any of this? I have nothing to offer. I am not qualified to do anything like that. I am an 80-year-old shepherd. Whatever you may have once seen in me, God, it's all gone. God, I've got nothing really to offer. Now, here's, man, I just feel like traditionally, uh, at this point in the story, often when this is taught, particularly if you're somebody who grew up in the church, you, you may have even you know, heard this or experienced this. I just feel like traditionally, whenever I hear this passage taught, this is typically where we begin just to criticize Moses. I mean, look how little faith he had. Look how little confidence he had. Look, he's doubting God. What a silly thing for you to do, Moses. Why would, why would you do such a thing? Moses, come on. And we judge him for being honest about his feelings of inadequacy. In fact, a lot of times, not only do we judge him, but we jump straight ahead and just try to fix him. Moses, here's where you are wrong. Here's how you should believe. Which, if that's ever happened to you, that's like a really great feeling, isn't it? Why do we do that? Why would that be the first place that we go when we, when we see a despondent old man startled at the fact that God wants to use him? I mean, here's my suspicion. If, if that is the first place you go when you read this story, if, if you're quick to laugh at Moses, if you're quick to, to look down on Moses, if you're quick to judge Moses for feeling unqualified or feeling inadequate, I think that probably says a whole lot more about you than it does him. But for those of you who, who read this passage and when you see Moses in this moment, you empathize. For those of you who read that and you say, I know exactly what Moses must have been feeling in that moment. God, who am I? That sounds like a perfectly legitimate question. I, mean, I tend to believe that if that's kind of the posture you would take towards Moses, if that's kind of the natural reading that you have when you come across this, you, I think, just probably have a healthier understanding of what it's like to encounter the holiest of holies, the living God of the scriptures, the one who spoke and the world came to believe. You don't assume that you're perfectly qualified. You don't assume, of course, I'm the best choice for God's team. You have a healthy fear and a recognition that God is perfect. God is holy. God is infinite, and I am none of those. You know, last week, uh, Angela and I had uh, dinner with some of, the fr- some of our friends, uh, some of our really good friends here at the summit, 
and uh, didn't realize that it was still Denver Restaurant Week, so we paid a whole lot more than we initially expected to pay. Uh, but it was still a really great dinner and a really good conversation, a really good time. But these were some of our friends here at the Summit who are currently going through a leadership development program uh, within our church. And, uh, and at some point in the conversation, we just began talking about, hey, what's that, that development program been like for you? Like, how do you feel like it's been going? What have you been learning? How do you feel about uh, what, what's going on? And uh, it was really, really interesting. They were talking about it. They were kind of sharing some stories from some of their training events. And at one point in the conversation, though, they said to me, Andy, you know, uh, if we're just being honest, at our first meeting, we were sitting around this table and everybody was just sharing uh, some of the things that they've been learning and sharing uh, some of their stories and we were sitting there thinking about the homework assignments that Justin gave us and some of the, the questions that we had to answer and some of the papers that we had to write. And, you know, part of us just felt really inadequate. I mean, we kind of felt like we just maybe shouldn't be here. Felt like maybe we're not really qualified to do this. Maybe this just isn't for us. And Angela and I, Angela and I just kind of listened and hear them share, almost like they were processing this out loud before us. And man, I can just tell you in that moment, I was so proud of them. I was like, man, you guys actually get it. You are going to be some of the very best leaders that we see here at the summit. Why? Because it's not like they're walking in here with some air of superiority. They're not walking with these assumptions that, yeah, of course we deserve to be here. Yeah, of course we're qualified to be here. No, they were coming in humble. They were coming in feeling inadequate. They were coming in with some hesitations, but they were choosing to believe that God has chosen us to be here. And man, I, I, gosh, have you ever felt that way? Right, have you ever felt, I'm not really qualified. I don't really have what it takes. I could never really be used for anything great. And that's probably how the rest of my life is going to go. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, for those of you who resonate with those feelings at all, for those of you who are tempted to think like Moses, who am I to, boom, fill in the blank? Who am I to be a good mother? Who am I to become a Christian? Who am I to make a difference in my workplace? Who am I to help be a part of changing our city? And here is where you should be encouraged today. Because I think this is exactly, this is exactly, guys, this is what Moses is trying to show us, that your sense of inadequacy is essential to the mission of God. Your sense of inadequacy is essential to the mission God has even placed on your life. Your feelings of, I'm not really qualified, that's actually what qualifies you from the very beginning. Man, you need to hear that. That's where even where our relationship with Jesus begins, right? Like, I'm not qualified to run my life. But God, you are. I'm not qualified to play king. Jesus, you are. I'm not qualified to be God. But God, you are. I'm not qualified to save myself. Jesus, you are. And that's what it means to repent and to believe in Jesus unto salvation. I mean, it's exactly where a relationship with Jesus begins. It's also the only way you can ever effectively carry out the calling that God has put on your life. Man, I think about some of you, I know we have a lot of students here right now, young professionals, and I just even think about the reality, the environment that you find yourselves in right now, the unique difficulties that you face on a day-to-day basis to be able to follow Jesus well and follow him faithfully. And you know, I mean, every single one of you know, in order for you to do that really, really well, you are completely dependent upon the grace of Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit. And apart from that, you know how absolutely miserable life can be. 
I mean, I think about some of those of you who are dealing with habitual sin, whether that's something like pornography or just even unhealthy relationships, whether it's an addiction or anger. And you, if you think that you could effectively conquer any of those things by your, I mean, I don't even have to tell you. Like, you know that you are completely incapable of doing that in your own power. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only by God's grace that you're able to walk uh, in freedom and put sin to death. You know that. And that's why verse 12 here is so important. Like, look at verse 12. It's so, so crucial to the whole thing. What does God say? He says, Moses, I will be with you. God with us. Emmanuel. Which means regardless of what you're going through in life, when you're struggling to believe, when you're having a hard time staying faithful, or maybe you just even feel stagnant right now in your relationship with God, here is the good news. You are promised God's presence. He comes down and he comes near, not because of anything good within us, but because of the good within him. This is good news for us today, guys. God comes down, he comes near, and he promises his presence in us. Finally, not only does he come near, not only does he even address our inadequacies with his own adequacies, but finally this morning, or this evening, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that God reveals who he actually is to us. He's going to reveal himself to us. Now, uh, I want to take a step back. And uh, we kind of zoom out a little bit here because I think this is important to understanding this last point tonight. Uh, because at this point in the Exodus, you have to realize that within Egypt, really in, within the entirety of the ancient Near East, the kind of the cultural environment that this was kind of happening in was that there was always a question about the gods. You know, like, who are the gods? Which god is the most powerful? Which god is the most important? Which god actually reigns supreme? And much of Exodus, this very book was written to demonstrate, actually to prove the power of the God of Israel above all their gods. The reason why I say that is that what's happening here in Exodus 3 tonight is, uh, is that not only do we see our God comforting his people by coming close and promising his presence, but for the first time within the entire story of the Bible, God reveals himself to Israel exactly for what he is, and he tells them his name. I wish I had time to go into all of this. There's just so much here in these latter verses. Uh, here's what I want to do tonight as we kind of wrap up. Uh, I just want to show you three attributes of God this evening uh, where God just reveals certain things about himself that I think are, are, are intended to build confidence within all of us this evening. Now, the first one we see is the self-sufficiency of God. The self-sufficiency of God. Now, if you remember... The beginning of the story, Moses comes across this burning bush and he tells us it's a strange sight because the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. It just continues to burn. Now, the reason why this is strange is because we all know, I mean, every one of us knows this, that um, the reason why it's strange is that fire is dependent, right? Fire is dependent upon fuel. Fire can only exist if there's combustible fuel. No fuel, no fire, but this fire is not consuming the bush. And what that means is that this fire does not need fuel. As one pastor said, this is a fire that depends on nothing. It is a fire that has its own infinite source of being and power all contained within itself. And here's what that means. 
God comes to us in the fire showing us that he is completely sufficient within himself. He depends on nothing and everything depends on him, which I recognize that sounds very philosophical, but it's actually really simple and that's really good news. You know why? Because functionally, we tend to believe that God depends on us. Functionally, we tend to believe that God depends on us. I'm going to give you an example. I think this might work tonight. Um, Prior to getting married, again, I recognize some of you are married, many of you are not, and that's totally fine. It doesn't matter for this illustration. Some of you are married, some of you are not. Prior to getting married, though, we tend to believe that finding the person that we want to marry is nearly exclusively dependent on us, right? I mean, it's like, I got to make sure I dress the right way. I got to make sure I look the right way. I got to make sure I talk the right way. I got to make sure I don't say the wrong things. I got to make sure I'm not awkward. I got to make sure I put my best foot forward. I mean, we all know this, right? Like when we're dating, that's kind of like the posture that we take, right? I'm not saying any of those are bad things. Like here at the summit, we think like, we're trying to raise up a people who are not awkward and we want to do dating well and, and that's okay. All those things are good things. But we tend to, don't we tend to believe that like this is almost exclusively dependent upon me? Like the way I perform, the way I behave, the way I look, all of those things, like this is how this is going to happen. But you know what's interesting? You know what happens? You know what happens especially once you get married? Maybe even particularly a few years into marriage. You know what changes? You begin to recognize For those of you who are married, you can attest to this. You begin to recognize the only reason I have this person, the only reason I have my wife is because God gave her to me. Like God gave him to me. Ultimately, for some reason, you see this and you begin to see a different way. It wasn't my cleverness. It wasn't how suave I thought I was. It was God orchestrating all of my life because I was an idiot. Like I wasn't nearly as suave as I'd like to imagine myself being in those moments. He did it in spite of me. You know, and that's what God's self-sufficiency is all about. He gives and he never needs to take. He's never dependent upon you. He can save you. He can provide for you. He can protect you. He can send you. And none of that is dependent upon you and your own being or power at all. It already exists within him himself. That should be really comforting. Man, that, that should liberate us because some of you, some of you live in such a way that you feel like you have to hold the entire weight of the world in your own hands. That you go through life thinking everything is completely dependent upon me. And so maybe for some of you, for the very first time in your life, you're able to see like maybe I can let go and let God hold the world. You thought you had to perform to earn God's love. He doesn't need your performance. Our performances are no good before God. He is sufficient within himself to provide exactly what we need. Secondly, the eternality of God. The eternality of God. When we get to the end of this passage, we see in verse 13, Moses asks God the big question. He says, all right, God... If you're going to send me to Pharaoh and you're going to send me to Egypt and you're going to send me to everybody else, fine. But when I get there, they're going to ask me, who sent you? And I'd like to know what your name is. What's your name? Who shall I say has sent me? You know what God responds with? Look at what he says here. He says, tell them I am has sent you. Totally makes sense, right? Everybody got that? I am has sent you. Like, what the heck does that even mean? It sounds so confusing when you first read this because essentially what God gives Moses as his name is the Hebrew verb to be. 
That's all he gives them. And so there's all kinds of different ways that people have over the last several centuries chosen to translate this. There's a lot of different options that are all great options. You know, um, our Bibles typically say, I am who I am. Other translations will say, I will be who I will be. A perfectly good translation is, I be who I be. There's all kinds of different possibilities. He just gave us these, these words that later become Yahweh and the Lord. But honestly, man, here's what is so important for us tonight. This is where, where we need to dial in here. Because I think as we're just even trying to think about all the different possibilities and we're just seeing the, the, honestly, here's the thing. The most important clue to deciphering the name of God, it's in the bush. It is in the burning bush. bush. Remember, he is the fire that needs no fuel. This is what God is saying. I have no beginning and I have no end. I always am. There was never a time in the past when it, was, when it could be said, he will be, nor will there ever be a time in the future when it could be said that I was. No, I always am. There's no beginning and there is no end. You know, why, you know why this is good news for us today? Because our God is a God who never grows weary. Man, he never gets tired. He never grows weak. And you know what's interesting about that? I mean, just think even right now. Think some of the most important people that you know, some of the most significant people in the world, some of the most driven, talented, successful people in the world, do you know what they all share in common? Every single one of them spends about a third of their life asleep. While the world keeps on spinning, whispering, we'll be fine without you for a while. Isn't that amazing? The most, in, most impressive, talented people in the world, they still spend a third of their life asleep. God, he never sleeps. He never grows weary. The God who simultaneously exists outside of time and still chooses to work within it. Why? For your sake. Because he loves you and he is committed to you. This is such good. Man, just think about a God who's beyond time that he knows the end from the very beginning and he is the end and the beginning. He does this for us. That is such good news. Finally, we're gonna end with this tonight. The omnipotence of God. The omnipotence of God. The chapter closes with God basically, man, this is like, I love the way this, this chapter ends. This is basically God just saying like, Moses, here's how it's gonna happen. Like, I'm telling you exactly how it's going to go down. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go. Pharaoh's not going to listen. I'm going to step in. I'm going to save. I'm going to rescue. I'm going to deliver. It's going to be awesome. And that's what he tells him. That's how the chapter ends. He's like, it's going to be incredible. You're not going to even believe what I tell you here. He's going to do for his people what he promised to do for them from the very beginning. Not because of anything inherently good within us, but because of his love and his promise and his covenant for us. And here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to believe. Here's what you need to remember. God uses his power for the good of his people. The entire book of Exodus will show us this time and time and time again that the miraculous, extravagant power of God is put on display. And every time he acts, get this, every time he acts, every time he intervenes, every time he graciously compassionately steps in and reveals himself to his people, it's meant to create within us this unshakable confidence that God is with us and that God is for us and that God is working for our joy. 
Man, this is such good news for us as we look at this chapter that God is capable of accomplishing everything he has ever promised to do. Man, we see this like carried out through the entirety of the Bible. And we see this all throughout the Exodus. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. We see this carry into the New Testament that God is in the business of just basically transferring people. It's like transferring. He takes Moses, somebody who's not qualified. He makes them qualified. He takes a people who is in slavery. He delivers them into freedom. And that goes all the way through the New Testament. We see Jesus doing that very same thing for us. He takes people who are living in darkness, who are living in bondage, who are living in slavery, and says, I will make you free. As Paul would say in Colossians 1, he takes us, he delivers us, us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of the Son and whom he loves and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that good news? Man, that Jesus does that for us because he loves us, not because there's anything in us that qualifies for us to do that. But God says, I love you so much and I'm so committed to your joy and I so want to see you succeed that I am willing to come down and come near and come close and love you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks. God, we just rejoice tonight as we even look at Exodus. They rejoice that you are God who comes down and you are God who comes near and you are God even in spite of us, even with how unqualified we are, that you come to us in the most gracious and the most compassionate and the kindest possible way. You look at us and you love us. God, that is such good news. I pray that we would believe that. I pray even tonight for those who, who don't know you personally, who don't mind be, maybe have a relationship with you, God. I just pray that this evening they were given a glimpse of your grandeur. This evening they were given a, a glimpse of why you can be trusted. Given a glimpse of how much you care. God, for those of us who do know you and follow you, and even those of us, maybe it's just hard. Our faith feels stagnant, and we don't feel like we're growing, and we don't feel like maybe we're really truly experiencing you. God, I pray that you would help us make the jump from head knowledge to heart knowledge. God, I pray that you would help us to be able to walk with you and to love you and to worship you and to enjoy you in the type of relationship that you created us to exist within. God, that's what you want for us, your people. And tonight we, we just ask that we would step into that with a confidence knowing that you are eager to provide. You are God with us, Emmanuel. We love you. God, we thank you. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior. Amen.